You're listening to the Deeper Christian Bible Study Series in the book of Ephesians. Thank you for joining me, Nathan Johnson, on an in-depth, verse-by-verse study of this incredible book by Paul. Now, let's dive into the lesson for today. Well, if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 2. Again, we've been walking through this little mini-series in Ephesians 2, looking at the power of God being demonstrated in the life of the church. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at verses 11 and 12. And this morning, I want to look specifically at verse 13 with you. And uh, for, but for the sake of context, I want to read uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 down through uh, 13. So if you have your Bibles, Ephesians 2, Paul writes this, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision in the flesh by human hands, were at that time, apart from Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, but now, whoo, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I'll look at verse 13 again. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Uh, this is review for, for all of us, but uh, as we were walking through this little section, one of the things I keep bringing back to our attention is the fact that the division between the Jews and the Gentiles wasn't just like a, oh, I don't like you kind of stuff. The division between the Jews and the Gentiles was so intense. In fact, again, one commentator said that one of the greatest hostilities of people groups ever in human history was that between the Jews and the Gentiles. Uh, Again, another commentator said that the hatred of the Jews and the Gentiles was so great that in the time of Jesus, the mindset of the Jew was that the only reason why God created the Gentiles, and who are the Gentiles? You, (laughs) sorry, us, I better put myself in that group, that the only reason why God created the Gentiles was that the Gentiles were going to be the fuel for the fires of hell. Oh, praise the Lord. Again, that's miserable. I mean, that's like, that is horrible. And we talked about the fact that, you know, the Jews took this choosing that God chose them as his special people. And while that is true, they were supposed to be the blessing from which all the nations of the world could get in. But they kind of took that and and kind of saw it from this uh, egotistical kind of perspective of, hey, we're the best, you're fuel for hell. (laughs) So if you could imagine in the early church just the severity of tension that's happening. Because, you know, here are these Jews and they're coming to Christ and that makes sense. Because Jesus was a Jew. But then what do we do with all these Gentiles who are starting to get in on this thing? Who are starting to believe that Jesus is Lord and, and that this, the Holy Spirit has been outpoured for them. And like, what are you going to do with all that? In other words, if you are a Jewish Christian, you have, a, you have a, suddenly a huge tension going on. Why? Because, well, I thought they were fuel for hell. And now they're brothers and sisters in Christ? So obviously there's this great, wonderful tension uh, happening in the New Testament. But what Paul's doing here in Ephesians is he's going back and reminding this church their position prior to Jesus. And again, look, look at verse 12. 
He says, I'm reminding you something about your life formally. Again, this isn't the present tense. This isn't what's currently going on. But I don't want you to forget what God has done in you. So where did he bring you from? Oh, Paul gives you five little ideas or five thoughts with this. Again, this is just review. But one of those is that you were without Christ. That here you are, you had no hope, there was no salvation, there was no Messiah around the bend. That there was no hope. That there's no means of salvation because you were, you were cut off. Uh, number two, you had this idea that you were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. That as a part of Israel, you had all these benefits and all these blessings and all that stuff taking place, but you did not have access to it. Why? Because you were not part of Israel. You were a Gentile. He says not only that, but you were strangers to the covenants of promise. That God has made all these exceeding and great and precious promises, but you don't have access to that. Why? Because that was reserved for this, the people in the commonwealth of Israel. And because of all that, wow, you were without hope. And finally, you were without God in the world. Now, as Christians, we look at the, the secular world today, and we're like, you guys need Jesus. Why? Well, it's that list. That, there, that there's this separation going on. That, that you have no hope. Why? You don't have God in this world. That, that you, you don't partake of the promises. That, that there's this commonwealth called the life of Jesus that you need to get in on. So you realize this list is still true today. But it's not a Jew and Gentile thing. This is a saved and unsaved kind of thing. And one of the benefits that we have as believers is that we get to go marching out into the world and say, Woo! Hey, you need Jesus. Why? Because <laughs> there is hope. That there is promises. And don't come to Jesus for what you get, for clarity's sake. But realize that life is found in him. And here you are walking as a dead man. And so Paul, again, it's interesting, Paul is going back and saying, look, let me remind you what you came out of and what you were. He summarizes that entire thing in two words in our verse, verse 13. He summarizes this entire thing by saying that you were afar off. Yeah, that you were far off. Now that word, far off, uh, it's used 10 times in the New Testament. And most of the time it's used, it has this idea of distance. Uh, for example, uh, Jesus is talking to this man who's filled with demons. And it says that afar off, there was a whole bunch of pigs. And the demon says, hey, don't send us to the abyss, send us to the pigs. And where were the pigs? Over there somewhere. They were afar off. You can see them, but they're not close at hand. They're over there. Uh, that word is used like in the prodigal son story where Here's the son, we're going to talk about it in a second, but the son was out and away, and, and when he was still afar off, he's just this little speck of the horizon. What did the father do? The father ran to him. It has the idea of distance. Now, three times of those ten where this word shows up, it's used for Gentiles, that the Gentiles have been separated. They are afar off. Uh, you can even see one of those down in uh, chapter 2, verse 17. If you just go down a couple of verses. In verse 17, Paul says that Jesus came and preached peace to those who were far away, speaking of the Gentiles, and peace to those who are near, speaking to those who are in, in the fellowship of, of, of Judaism, of, of Israel. So he says, hey, it's that, again, it's that Jew-Gentile thing, but who did Jesus preach to? It wasn't just to the little group inside. He preached to the guys way out there, which is us. 
So Paul is summarizing this whole idea that, hey, you're, you've been excluded. You don't have access to the promises. Hey, there is no hope. There is no God. You're not living with God in the world. He summarizes all of this by saying you've been afar off, that you've just been way out there somewhere. You've been looking in through a window going, oh, if I could just have access. Oh, if I could just get in there. Oh, if I could just. But you've never had access until now. And look at what Paul says about this thing in verse 13. But now. Isn't it amazing how the profundities of the gospel can be contained in two little words? I mentioned this back in our study when we were looking at verse 4, where in verses 1 through 3, Paul's talking about just the, he's depicting the life of sin in, in, in someone. And then he says in verse 4, but God. And what I was trying to emphasize in that whole idea is, it's amazing to me that you can summarize the entire gospel with two little words. That here's your life full of sin, here's your life full of junk, and what has God done in your life? But God. He but God in your life. He stepped in and he created a whole new reality. Now again, you have to flesh that out because you can't just walk up to somebody and say, I want to share the gospel to you, but God. (laughs) Obviously, you've got to expand a little bit beyond that. But if you want a way to summarize, and once you know the gospel, if you want to summarize it, you can summarize it with that phrase. And it's interesting that Paul's doing that again in our passage. That he's saying, here you are, you're afar off. Here you are, you've been estranged. Here you are, you have no hope. And what has God done? But now, that there's this new present reality that you are getting to partake of and participate in. What is that? Oh, look at this. Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus. So this is only found in one place. Hey, you've always been estranged. You've always been pushed off. But now there's a new reality. But where's that reality taking place? In Jesus. Where's the only place it's ever going to take place? Jesus. Because there's only one way. And no, that's not politically correct today. There's still only one way. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly afar off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. That word brought near is, is rather interesting to me. Uh, the word brought there is actually the Greek word genomai, which has this idea of being created or made. So really, a, probably a better way of translating this is, you have been made near. Uh, that word again, made, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's an indicative, which, don't get lost. <laughs> I know the nerds are excited, but for everyone else, just bear with me here. It's an indicative which means this is not up for questioning. This is a simple statement of fact. So Paul is not saying, well, maybe you are, maybe you're not. He's saying, let me just, this is a simple statement. I'm just, hey, this is a fact. You have been brought near. Isn't that encouraging? You don't have to question this. You don't have to go, well, is this really for me? I don't know. I mean, maybe. Paul says, get off, get off of that. This is a simple statement of fact. You have been made near. You have been brought near. And what's also interesting is it's in the passive tense, which means you are not responsible for that action. So what's taking place? God has brought you near. So what part did I have? None. Hey, you are afar off. You've been looking out through a window. You've been trying to get in. You've had no access. So what did God do? Everything. And he took you, he took you and brought you in. So he's the one doing the action. You just receive the action. You get the benefit of the action. And again, this is not up for question. This is a simple statement of fact. 
That's phenomenal. And again, that word genomai has this idea of coming something out of nothing. It's been a created kind of a thing. So what, what has happened? You have never had access. He grabbed you and brought you in, and he has made something new in the middle of all this. Well, what is that? Nearness. Now, this just tickled me. I don't know what you want to do with this. I just think this is so delightful. The word here for near, brought near, again, it has this idea of closeness. And again, a lot of times it has to do with like space. In other words, uh, you're over there, and if you took five steps closer to me, I'd be like, whoa, you're getting close. You're near, right? It has that idea. Uh, sometimes it has an idea of time. Uh, for example, the evening is drawing near, right? It has this idea of time. <clears throat> but the word itself, <laughs> this word near, the root word of this word, like when you, when you get to the root, has this idea of to squeeze or to throttle something. That's interesting to me. And here's kind of the idea. Again, don't go crazy with this. But hypothetically, let, let's say I, I wanted to choke Nick. <laughs> hypothetically. Hypothetically. You realize the only way I'm ever going to be able to choke Nick is when I draw near. <laughs> right? In other words, you cannot throttle somebody. You cannot squeeze somebody without drawing near. That's that idea. Which is awkward. <laughs> maybe, maybe a better understanding, if you want a different illustration, which is probably better, is that here's this little kid, Johnny, and Johnny's running and he falls and scrapes his knee. And so Johnny starts crying. So what does his parent do? Johnny's little parent grabs little Johnny, draws him near, and squeezes him. And just embraces and holds him tight. And he has been drawn near. And again, a lot of times it has the idea of distance or time. But it's interesting that at least in our context, there's this idea in the midst of this squeezing <laughs> idea that it's, it's intimate, it's closeness, it's, it's relational. It's... So can you imagine what's taking place according to Paul? Paul says, hey, look, you've been afar off, you've been estranged, you've been always out there somewhere, but what has God done? God has literally taken you, he's brought you near to himself, he's wrapped his arms around you, and he's squeezing you. He's brought you near. And this is a whole new reality that you get to experience. It's neat. So when you look at this idea of coming from afar off to being brought near, I want to give you a couple just pictures from the Bible of where this, this idea, you can just kind of see it as an illustration. Because I think it, it becomes a beautiful picture through the tenor of Scripture of you which has been far off, have been brought near, so I have a couple quick illustrations. Number one is the Ark of the Covenant. Isn't it interesting when you ponder the idea of the Ark? Uh, the Ark was symbolic of the presence of God. In fact, the Ark was actually a representation in the earthly of the heavenly throne room. That the mercy seat was above it, uh, above the Ark. And, and the whole thing was all wrapped up about the presence. But in the Old Testament, where did we keep the Ark? Well, 
in the, in the old days, it was in the tabernacle. And once the temple was built, it was put into the Holy of Holies in the temple. But, but you realize that the tent or the, or the flap, the, the curtain, the veil that was separating the inner place from the most holy place, that was a massive veil. In fact, in the Old Testament, during the tabernacle days, when they would carry the tabernacle from place to place to place and have to set up the tabernacle at each place they would go to, scholars, I don't know how they found this out, but the, the legend was, or the, the, the writings that they found outside of Scripture, was that well over 30 men had to carry the veil because it was so heavy. I mean, the veil was the, the width of a man's hand. It was four inches. Well, why was it so massive? Well, you, you understand that if, if God's presence is in the Holy of Holies and we get a windstorm and that veil goes, he might get out. And so, hey, that curtain better be thick and heavy. Why? So that thing doesn't move. And there was this separation so that we did not have access in. Where, what were we? We were afar off. In fact, when you got into Jesus' day, it was even more severe because here you had the, the, the actual temple and it still had the veil. But only one man once a year had access to it. So even as a Jew, you were afar off from the very near presence of God. And if you were a Gentile, you didn't even have access into the temple proper. You had the outer courts. I mean, the, the court of the Gentiles, which was beyond the beyond. And so you could look in and go, yeah, well, God, I'd love to have presence with you. But even as a Jew, you didn't have access to it. That everyone was estranged. So isn't it phenomenal then that on, on, the, on the cross, when Jesus died, Here's the statement. Listen, this is so powerful. Matthew 27, uh, verses 50 and 51. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now listen to the very next statement. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. And it's like, why, why would Matthew include that little detail? Well, there's two reasons. One of those, we find a hint in the book of Hebrews. And it says that the veil in the temple was the flesh of Christ. That it was symbolic of his flesh that was torn in two. That he was being rent. By the way, this is so brilliant of God. In the Old Testament, when you look at how the, the veil was made, it was to be made out of scarlet, blue, and purple thread which was all, it's all the colors of royalty. It was all the, the most rich, you know, uh, fabric kind of stuff. I mean, this thing was expensive. But what colors were? It was colors of royalty. Blue, scarlet, and purple. But in Hebrews, it says that that veil is his flesh. And do you realize how profound this is, that on the cross, he has been beaten and bruised? So what color would his flesh have been? blue, scarlet, and purple. That's not by accident. That's incredible to me. Well, what's the other reason why Matthew's given us this little insight about the veil? Well, because he's trying to show you something is taking place. It's significant that the veil was not ripped from bottom to top. Right? This, this thing was over 30 feet tall. And if you were going to rip it, the only leverage that you would have is likely from the bottom. 
Because for you to be on the ladder and try to, you know, that, that's going to be a hard thing. And it's four inches thick. <laughs> so good luck. So logically, if it was a human that was ripping this thing, you would start from the bottom. But it wasn't from the bottom. It was from the top, meaning what? God's doing the ripping. So it's symbolic of something beautiful. What is it? Now, for the very first time in human history, humans have access in to the Holy of Holies, the very near presence of God. But it also is symbolic that God is coming out. He will no longer dwell in a 30 by 30 little box called the Holy of Holies. Where is he going to dwell? His people. That's phenomenal, folks. And you realize that we've always been cut off. We've always been a far away. We've always had separation. But now we have been brought near into the very dear presence of God. So much, in fact, that listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews 4.16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Or Hebrews 10.19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. So what did the blood of Jesus do? It gave us access in. Now, there's no longer a temple. I understand that. But you realize that if they ever rebuilt the temple, as a Christian, not that they would ever let me do this, but as a Christian, though they'll never let me in, as a Christian you realize that I could go walk up to the temple, throw open that curtain, be like, Jesus, here I am, and have boldness. So even though they would be trembling, allowing one man once a year to enter in, you and I actually have unlimited access 24 hours a day into the very near and dear presence of God. And what's even more amazing is we don't even need a temple. In fact, you have become the temple. Talk about being brought near, being squeezed in a little hug, that he has made you the temple. And so we who've been always afar off and always had to look from a distance, he has grabbed us and brought us in by the blood of Christ, and he's done something in us where now we can walk in with boldness and confidence into the very near, dear presence. In fact, his presence has now indwelt our lives. That's incredible. That's a great picture of this. I I mentioned this one earlier, but when you look at the story of the prodigal son, it's a profound picture on so many levels. And I I wish we just had time to talk about the prodigal son story. But in Luke chapter 15, Jesus gives these set of three parables. And it's interesting, as you walk through the three parables, it it goes from this big view, and it gets narrower and narrower. For example, there's a shepherd with 100 sheep, and he loses one. And the next story is a woman with 10 coins and loses one. And then the next story is a father with two sons. So you have this idea that Jesus in this set of three stories is bringing kind of the, he's, he's bringing illumination or he's bringing this magnification as he's going through the stories and it's getting more and more sharp. And Jesus, let me tell you a story. He said this father had two sons and the younger son looked at the father and said, dad, I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance now. Which is what he was saying. And in that culture, this is like one of the greatest offenses. That while your father is still alive, you say, Father, I want my inheritance. And you realize they do not live in a liquid economy. In other words, they don't have bank accounts. They don't have cash. 
So the only way that the father can get the son's inheritance was that he's going to have to sell off a bunch of stuff. But the son is urgent, which means he's not going to get a good deal. Because back in those days, if you were going to sell something, especially property or, or items, it often took weeks or months to sell it. Why? Because you had to haggle on the pricing, all this kind of stuff. But hey, this is a short, hey, father, I want my inheritance now. So the father just had to sell everything at just horrible prices just so he can get his son his little inheritance. And isn't it interesting, the moment the son got the inheritance, he went off into a distant country. And we've looked at this before, but for a distant country, Jesus is talk, he's talking this whole, he's telling the story on the, on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so for him to go to a distant country, all he had to do was go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And it was considered a different country. So this, it's not like he had to travel hundreds and hundreds of miles. He really just had to go you know, 20 miles down the road and he was actually in a different country. But regardless, he goes to a different country and he squanders this little money that he received. And in desperation, a drought comes. Now, I find it interesting that when you talk to a Jew about that story, they actually see the drought, this famine thing, as a blessing of the Lord to draw the sun back. That why did God send the famine? Not to punish him, but to woo him back. I think that's interesting. So don't look at your hard times as a negative. But here's the sun, and he's, <clears throat> he's feeding pigs, which you understand in that culture who detest pigs, this is the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of the barrel. And he's looking at the pods of these pigs that the pigs are eating, which, by the way, the, the pods are just these little leaves off of these certain trees, the carrot trees. And he's looking at them just going, man, the pigs are eating better than I'm eating. You know what? The servants at my father's house do better than I'm doing. Surely if I would go back to dad and just say, dad, make me a servant, I could actually at least survive. And so he brushes himself off and he starts making his way back to dad. And isn't it interesting that the father has been awaiting the return of the son? At least in the passage, and we understand it's just a story, but it seems like in the passage that he, every morning he's looking out at the horizon saying, oh, maybe today will be the day he returns. And in the afternoon during lunchtime, oh, maybe he's, yeah, no, I don't see him yet. And then at dinner time, oh, ah, is he? And the moment that he sees the son afar off, that's the same word. When he sees his son afar off, what does he do? Ponder this. The father is willing to shame himself. In this culture, as an older man, you do not run. Amen. <laughs> Amen. The young men run. The old men, the, more, the, more, the older you get and the more prestigious you become, the slower you walk. Boy, I'd love to go back to that concept. And if anything, as an older man, what you never do is you never show your legs. <laughs> Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so could you imagine, here's the father, and out of his desperate love for that son, he sees him afar off. And he cannot, he cannot help himself. And of course, they wear those long skirt thingies, you know. So the only way you can run without tripping is you've got to take it and bring it back up, and you hold it at your waist. Gird up your loins. That's actually the idea. That you, you take that little thing, and you wrap it around your legs in, su in such a way where you can tie it in, so now your legs are free where you can run. And as an older man, this is shameful. And as an older man, you don't run. But the father, out of his overwhelming love for his son, does not care 
and he runs to the son and embraces him. He squeezes him. You who were once afar off have been brought near and squeezed. How? The blood of Jesus. And I, I know we look at this all the time, but when you look at this idea of the blood of Jesus, <clears throat> you realize that we sing songs about it and we talk about it, but I don't think we really understand it. Uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a great preacher from yesteryear, he said, Our gospel is a gospel of blood. Blood is the foundation. Without it, there is nothing. That's a, that's a strong statement. Why is blood so important? Well, part of the reason is because we understand that life is in the blood. Leviticus, right? I think it's 1711. That life is in the blood. So when we're talking about the blood, we're not just talking about this red stuff. We're talking about life, that which holds the life, that which is the life. So when we talk about the fact that you've been brought near by the blood of Christ, it is because of his shedding of the blood. It is because of his life given for us that we now have access in. Do you realize there is power in the blood? There's that old song. I won't sing it, but let me just read you the line. The first verse. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There is power in the blood. Power in the blood. Would you or evil a victory win? There is wonderful power in the blood. And we sing those kind of songs, but I don't know if we actually understand it because if we understood it we would be living differently the blood of jesus you understand is considered or called in first peter 119 precious i mean this thing is not just like well it's good that he died for us this is precious his blood is precious folks in fact just look at our passage verses in uh, verse 11 and 12 and 13 that the blood of Christ, think about this, has brought us near, has allowed us to be partakers in this commonwealth called Christianity. We now get to be partakers of the promise. We have hope and we have God in this world. How's that all taking place? The blood of Jesus. But as you start to look at what the blood is for scripturally, I'll just give you a quick list. This to me is so profound. Ponder, what is the blood of Christ in your life for? It's for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, I don't know if I should. I won't give you all the verse references, but you can look these up. Okay? Uh, but for the forgiveness of sins, it's for atonement. It's for propitiation, which is a just and satisfying offering in our stead. It's for justification from sin. It's for the remission of sins. It's for the cleansing and washing of, from all sin. It is the establishment of a new covenant. It's for reconciliation in the Christ, for the purging of our consciences, for peace, for righteousness, for the purpose of saving us from the wrath that will that, uh, that will come from the destruction of the devil for overcoming the devil is for redemption, eternal redemption for the purchase of our very beings for the purpose of giving us life within eternal life. It's for the bringing back to life. It's for blessing. It is for sanctification. It is for spiritual and physical healing. It is for boldness to enter into the Holy of Holies, the very near presence of God. And it's for the purpose of enabling us to make our daily, hourly, minute by minute home in Christ Jesus. I mean, that is an incredible list of what the New Testament says the blood of Christ is for. So this isn't like, well, yeah, yeah, the blood, woo, way, way to go. This is like, no, do you recognize this is significant? 
because it is all about the life of Jesus. And you realize the blood of Christ goes three directions. It's Godward in that it removes the separation that we have with him. It's manward in the sense that it purges our conscience and it removes all of our guilt. And it is Satanward in that it removes the grounds for his accusation, that he no longer has authority or a voice in our life. Well, how do we have all that? The blood of Jesus. And you realize that the blood isn't just merely for forgiveness, it's also for intimacy. Right? 1 John 1, verse 7 says that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Which is true. That is amazing. That it is for forgiveness. But why did God forgive us? So that he can have relationship and intimacy. So why did he bring us near? Oh, so he can squeeze you. Why did he bring you near? Oh, so he can have relationship with you. Why, did, why is he bringing you near? Oh, so that he can have relationship and oneness with you. So here's the question. What is keeping you from having greater intimacy with Jesus? Because you realize there's nothing on his end that's prohibiting it. If we're not experiencing the intimacy and the relationship that we want with Jesus, it's because we are keeping him at arm's length. Because he wants to draw us near. He wants to bring you over and squeeze you. Not choke you, for clarity's sake. He wants to squeeze you. You realize that he's that desperate father who was looking in the distance and when he sees you afar off he's willing to shame himself and run and embrace him by the way do you know what's so amazing about that prodigal son story is that it was a story that in jesus's day every jew would have known the story but jesus changed the ending that prodigal son story was a common story in Jesus' day that fathers would teach their children of why they should never shame the father. And so they would say, hey, this father had two sons, and one ran off. And in the original story, when the son came back, and the son was walking back, the community, because the shame of the father makes it the shame of a community, the whole insula, this whole compound community thing that they lived in, that the community rose up, saw the son, went out and killed him. And so fathers would use the story to say, look, you bring shame upon the father, you bring shame upon the community, then it is, it is within the right and it is actually the duty of the community to remove the shame. So could you imagine Jesus is sharing this story and the son went out and squandered everything and everyone's like, yep, he's going to come back and we're going to kill him. And Jesus says, as the son was making his way back, the father who was, who's been fogging up his window, waiting for the return of the son, with just this anxiousness and desperation, who wants relationship and intimacy, sees the son afar off and runs to him. Well, why did the father run to him? He wants relationship. But also, he had to protect the son from the community. And so the father was willing, he's already been shamed, because the son asked for the inheritance. But now he's willing to shame himself again 
for the preservation of the sun. And so he grabs the garment and girds it up and starts to run to the sun. And when he gets to the sun, he embraces the sun. He draws him near. And he basically reestablishes his position in the community. He puts the ring on the finger, sandals on the feet, robe on his back. They kill the fattened calf, break out the diet seven up. They're about to have a party, right? They bring out all, bring out all the guests. And what is the father doing? He's saying, I'm bringing him back into this thing. That yes, he is shamed, but he's mainly shamed me. And I'm willing to even shame myself to bring him back in. I want him brought near. So Jesus changed the ending. Do you know what Jesus wants to do in your life? He wants to bring you near. He wants to make you intimate, one with him. That you get to partake of the divine nature, which again doesn't mean you become God. But he wants you to share in something. But you've always been afar off. You've always been in the distance. So what is he going to do? Isn't it amazing that God was willing to come and shame himself to become a human so that he can embrace you and take you and bring you near? Well, how's that going to take place? His blood. It's his life that you've been brought near. So if you're not experiencing the intimacy and the oneness, the relationship that that you want, you realize he wants it more than you want. And he has done everything necessary to bring you near. In fact, he's done everything and given you everything that you need for life and for godliness. So would you embrace him? And would you just go after him? Would you recognize that Jesus is near you? And it doesn't matter how you feel and it doesn't matter what your emotions or whether or not you feel like he's distant or close. He hasn't left you. Will you let him squeeze you? Let's pray, Lord. Lord, it's so dumbfounding to me that we who've been afar off, and we who've never had access, and we who've been looking through a window, looking at what, we, oh, what we'd love to have, you have literally brought us. You made this new thing happen through your blood that we might experience intimacy and relationship with you. Lord, don't let us downplay your blood. Well, let us realize it was for far more than just mere forgiveness. That, that your blood allows us, yes, to be forgiven and yes, to have atonement and propitiation and justification, but, but it's also that we can have reconciliation and our consciences could be purged and we can live in peace and righteousness and we can't have hope to come. We can have redemption and life and blessing and sanctification. Lord, will you let us realize that it is through your blood that that we get to have relationship and intimacy with you, that you want to bring us near and embrace us, that you want to wrap us in a squeeze. Lord, would you remind us that you are like that father that Jesus gives in the parable that says, do you know what? how good my dad is? Our father is so good that when he sees you even a far distance away and you've already shamed him, he's willing to shame himself so that he can have relationship. And he doesn't make you a slave or a servant. He makes you a son. Lord, would you somehow embody that, embed that deep within our minds and our hearts? And Lord, don't let us keep you at arm's length. Don't don't let us push you back. Don't let us... Lord, may we press in all the more. May we experience the fullness of intimacy and relationship and 
oneness with you that you are longing to have, which is such a condescension. And yet what a blessing for us. Lord, let us marvel at the reality of the preciousness of your blood. We love you, Jesus. Give you the praise and the glory. In your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this study from the book of Ephesians with Nathan Johnson. If you would like additional resources to help you build your life around Jesus, I encourage you to check out my website at deeperchristian.com. This podcast is the audio version taken from my video series in Ephesians. And if you'd like to view the video version of this study, you can do so by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians. Know I am cheering you on as you build your life around and upon Jesus Christ. See you next time.